Hello, everybody, and welcome to a Wish You Were Dead podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike, and that is Gavin. And Gavin, it is not just the two of us again. Hello. It's not. Fia's we have back. our wonderful best good friend, Fia. Guess who's back? Back again. <laughs> We're one whole unit again, yeah. and it makes me happy. Yeah, me Yeah, too. absolutely. No, we, we missed Fia doing her, uh, outdoing her field work. Um, sadly, she's going to be back out doing it next week as well. Um, yeah. Oh. But we'll, we'll, we'll cross those bridges when we come to it. You know, science science must go on. That is true. But while Fia was out, I mean, big time shout out to Dr. Bob last week. That was a fun episode about the Adirondacks. Absolutely. If you, if you haven't had a chance to go listen to it. I mean, there's no Fia, so, you know, you know that kind of sucks. But, like, it was a fun episode talking about the Adirondack Mountains with somebody that actually knows what they're talking about. You know, as someone who was a former number one fan of the pod, I don't listen <laughs> to the pod anymore because I'm on it. Right. But when I'm away, I feel like this gives me a good opportunity to go back and listen to it. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. I'll tell you what. So, I mean, before, I'm sure you guys okay. noticed this. I didn't listen to a single episode of the pod when I was gone this summer <laughs> on uh, Hiking the Adirondack nice. Mountains. I needed a break from, from my entire old life, and this was this was part of it. So, Fia, you are a step ahead of me, certainly. At least you're candid. I'm never going to lie to you guys. That's true. All right. Well, bef- before we get into the actual meat, the meat and potatoes of this week's episode, Fia, do you have some special messages for us? Don't forget to rate the show on whatever platform you listen to, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Give us feedback about the show and any future future topics you would like to hear on the podcast. Uh, if you want to be a guest on the show, please, please, please fill out our guest form, uh, which can be all found in the show notes. So uh, normally at this point, we announce next week's episode topic, but it's an episode that ends in five, which means... Oh, wait. Oh, boy. That is a Mike Takes the Wheel episode. It's been a little bit. All right. It sure has. So, so, so part of the reason why we're not announcing the topic for next week's episode is because you know damn well I don't have the topic for next week's episode yet. I sure <laughs> do, buddy. And that's okay. That's okay. But yes, uh, if you have any sort of history questions or if you want to guess what Mike's going to throw at us next, if you want to look through the back catalog of uh, Mike Takes the Wheel episodes and try and come up with any kind of pattern there... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good luck uh, be, you'd be, be my guest uh but yeah so if you're looking forward to that let us know in the various ways to get in contact with the podcast but now into some of the actual content of the episode we move over to swap corner and what do you have for us this week Fia? so i uh, very last minute put this one together but it happened to be on topic of our podcast episode uh spoilers it's snakes the swamp corner organism that I have for you guys today is the speckled worm eel, uh, Myrophis punctatus. Uh, it's in the uh, snake eel family. I'm not going to even try to pronounce what it actually is. Uh, Ophicthidae. Oh, okay. Thank you. Ophicthidae, which is uh, meaning, I guess, snake eel family or what colloquially yep. people call them that but yeah they're found uh, in the atlantic ocean gulf of mexico caribbean and then a little more south towards brazil they're benthic organisms so they live on the bottom floor of the ocean and they are preyed upon by bony fish they're found 
uh, often with structures, so things like seagrass, mangroves, offshore reefs, as well as oyster reefs, because I also find them in my <laughs> oyster reefs. Cool. And they can be uh, anywhere to full salinity to brackish waters. And finally, they like to eat amphipods and microphytobenthos, which I had to look up what that was. And it's basically <laughs> photosynthetic <laughs> microorganisms like diatoms, cyanobacteria, green algae. Um, and then annelids they also eat, which are worms. And uh, yeah, they're a pretty cool looking guy. Take a look on Google if you care to learn about the speckled worm eel. I'm, I'm nervous. Because the first thing that came to my mind was you, when you said annelids, which are a worm, they are one of like an infinite number of types of worms. Uh, yeah, and then I was like, small. we should do an episode on worms. And then I was like, no. <laughs> Why not? Absolutely not. Um, oh. Because worm has such a loaded context. Most people, well, That's most people true. think of as a worm is an annelid, but there's like a thousand not even vaguely closely related groups of worms. Yeah. And I don't want to touch that, <laughs> literally or figuratively, to be honest. Right. All right. Well, thank you for that Swamp Corner, Fia. And that takes us to Today in History. What do you got for us, Mike? Okay, so uh, Today in History, going to keep it real short here. It's been uh, a lot of stuff in the news recently about a particular baseball player. I know neither of you guys are big baseball fans, but anything uh, uh, – that has like permeated your non-baseball existence? Has anything been happening in the baseball world that you guys are aware of? Um, Aaron Judge. I... Good, Fia. Well done. So there's been lots of oh. uh, hate That was pure it. guess. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the one big baseball story recently. So well, well done, Also, co yeah. coincidentally, um, there was uh, a CNN piece that they just recently did with uh, A-Rod. So I thought it was going to be something about him. Uh, nothing A-Rod related. So Aaron Judge has been making a lot of headlines recently for hitting, um, at the time of recording, 61 home runs and quite likely soon 62, um, right. which will break Roger Maris's, um old record for most home runs in a season. The problem is, is that that's not the record for most home runs in a season. And right. despite what a lot of people will say, just because other guys use steroids does not mean they did not play the game. So... Today in history, October 5th, 2001, Barry Bonds hit his 71st and 72nd home runs to take over the individual um, uh, single-season home run record holder. He would hit one more home run in that season for 73 total. So just to put this out there, Aaron Judge having an incredible season, one of the best offensive seasons of all time. He's not the single-season record holder, and he will not be. That is Barry Bonds. And he did that in 2001. So you this heard gave it here first, folks. Mike yeah. is defending steroids. Yeah. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. <laughs> so I'm also defending just like math in general, like, you know, <laughs> counting. Yeah. And greater than and less than symbols. So, you know, I don't think I'm going out on too strong of a limb here, but like, you know, also steroids. So, yeah. Is uh, that really like a, a debated what? thing that people yes. are just like, no, that just yeah. does not exist because they did steroids. Who's to say? Yeah, the, the people yes. who have been confirmed to, to have done steroids, uh, they'll have like an asterisk next to pretty much all of their records. So it's a like they technically still have asterisk. the record. Yeah. Right. Um, and also, they just technically to be clear, still have the record, but it's complicated. 
just to be clear about this too, when it comes to confirmed to have done steroids, a lot of these guys that we're talking about in the single season home run record chase, we're talking about Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, and Sammy Sosa. Mark McGuire, years after the fact, did admit he did steroids, but Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa, while it is widely, widely suspected they did steroids, have never failed a drug test and never admitted to have done uh, steroids. Hmm. So yet, right, and that kind of goes with the whole <laughs> thing of again, you never know who is doing what. So that is yeah. that is my little uh, uh, soapbox plea here that math exists, the records exist, and uh, Barry Bonds is the single season record holder. He did so on this day in two thousand one. Also, a quick question. Yeah. That does not include the postseason, right? Correct. So the uh, the regular okay. season home run chase is just, uh, or the single season home run records, and pretty much every single season record is just regular season, not the postseason. Okay. That was just that was just for my own knowledge. But no, that's a great okay. question. A lot of people are um, a lot of people you know are unsure of that kind of a thing. So yeah, that was today in history, and now we are going to turn it over to Gavin for the actual meat of today's episode. Gavin, uh, start talking. Yeah, so first and foremost, I'd like to apologize to my wife because she's going to hate this episode. She is very afraid of snakes to the point where if I talk about them too much, she gets very emotional. Um, And I also apologize for having just outed her on the podcast. Uh, (laughs) It's okay, Liz. Snakes. Snakes are very cool animals. Uh, So we're going to talk about what are snakes, which... Like with a good handful of epi- or, uh, like episode topics that we've done, like the elephants and rhinos and stuff like that, it seems kind of weird to be being like, what is a snake? Uh, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about what snakes are related to because it might not be necessarily what you think. And how did they get to be so weird? So, yes. first of all, snakes are incredibly diverse. They have around 30 families, 520 genera, the plural of genus, with around 3,900 species, which is only like 10 to 15% less than the number of mammals. So this is just snakes. Mm -hmm. Snakes are very diverse. And they are also incredibly widespread. They live on every continent except Antarctica. And for reptiles, they are able to live in much higher uh, altitudes and latitudes than most other reptiles. Like crocodilians are not cold tolerant at all. Like the most cold tolerant crocodilian is the American alligator. And that only gets as far north as like North Carolina and like southern North Carolina. Uh, Turtles, kind of okay at it. Some... You know, very specialized species of lizards are kind of okay at it. But snakes really are about as cold tolerant as non-bird reptiles get. For example, they live all through even like Scandinavia, way up in like Finland, Sweden, all the way to the very northern parts of uh, wow. Scandinavia. Yeah. Uh, they How do they survive well. the winter? Uh, they go into... It's, effectively the reptile version of hibernation it's called brumation very similar but metabolically different than what mammals do Mm -hmm. Um, they live well north of the great lakes here in north america and as far south as just barely uh, missing out on the southern tip of um, south america so not just the tip no okay and they live in all 
types of environments they, from, from places like the Amazon all the way to the entire Himalayas pretty much except for some of like the highest, highest peaks, even like the Sahara Desert. Snakes live effectively everywhere. Except for very famously a handful of places that I'd like to point out because I think it's fun. Uh, Antarctica, <laughs> like I mentioned, but specifically the island of Ireland. Oh, that's nice. There are there are no oh. native snakes to Ireland. And there's actually uh, a, a legend about St. Patrick of the famous St. Patrick's Day. Uh, I believe that holiday celebrates St. Patrick driving the snakes out of Ireland. I'm, so pretty sure that's supposed, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's supposedly the origin of why we celebrate that holiday. Huh. So when you say there's no snakes native to Ireland, are there no snakes at all on the island, or has some snakes been introduced? I'm, I'm positive that there are snakes there now, because snakes make very good invasive species, because they are so adaptable and can live in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty much everywhere except Antarctica that there were not native snakes. There probably are now. Like, for example, New Zealand originally had no native snakes. I'm positive there are some now. Really? Okay. Places like Iceland. I don't know for a fact that there are none on Iceland, or that there are some on Iceland today, um, but it would not surprise me if there were, like, an invasive species of snake or two. Mm-hmm. All the continents except Antarctica, and then a handful of islands that now probably also have snakes on them because humans... Uh, like to bring lots of unwanted guests. Yeah, we do that. <laughs> yeah. Snakes also come in a very wide variety of sizes, all the way from the Barbados thread snake, which tops out at about four inches long, to the extremely large snakes that people tend to be more afraid of, such as reticulated pythons, Burmese pythons, green anacondas, which get somewhere in the ballpark between 20 and 25 feet long, and a good few hundred pounds. However, that being said, those are the ones that are more famous. The vast majority of snakes don't get more than about three feet long. Hmm. The the average snake is pretty much like a garter snake, more or less. I was so like, is the you know the the standard deviation on snake distribution like pretty small? Like most of them kind of fall in that narrow band of you know two three For feet. Sure. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's comforting. and this shape is extremely flexible as in the the shape of being uh you know a tube and i mean flexible in in many ways it's very adaptable so Mm -hmm. there are snakes that do just about everything the snake body is really good at climbing it's really good at swimming it's really good at moving really quietly through grass and things it's there's even a species of gliding snake which is awesome. If you've never seen a video of it, look it up. It's incredible. Wow. Yeah. They just launch themselves from trees and they like spread out their ribs and basically slither through the air. But their entire body is like a long Frisbee (laughs) and they glide through the air and just slither through the air and it looks like they're flying and they can go like a good, you know, I think I heard at some point like well over 50 meters, even probably up to like a hundred meters if they were at a high, you know, high enough tree. Wow. That's going to be a sight to see. I mean, I wouldn't want to see it personally, but like, you right. know, on video maybe. Yeah. So this is an extremely and l- literally and figuratively flexible body shape. Cool. And 
Well, we're going to talk about some snake features here first and then talk about what they're related to. I'm going to say this up front because it helps talk about some of their features is that snakes are lizards. We'll talk more about that, but unlike a lot of the things like dinosaurs, where the, the root word soar or soria means lizard, almost mm. nothing that you have heard of that you that you know the scientific name of um, that has soar in it is actually a lizard or even closely related. So like dinosaurs, not closely related. Uh, ichthyosaurs, not closely related. Pterosaurs, not closely related. Lizards are true and proper snake. Snakes are true and proper lizards. Just as much as a gecko, as much as an iguana, as much as a a bearded dragon or a monitor lizard, just as much of a lizard as those things. Okay. I can get behind that. Okay. Like I said, I say that because it helps to, to talk about some of their features. So the most notable feature of snakes is that they don't have any legs. (laughs) <laughs> they're just kind of a, a noodle with a head with a, with a small caveat in that some actually have vestigial hind legs. Uh, some of the more quote unquote primitive groups like the, the boas and the pythons have these two little, they're called spurs uh, down by their cloaca, which is basically just a remnant claw from uh, when they used to have legs. Uh, it's, we're not really sure why they still have it. It's kind of thought that it might help in their mating somehow. Not sure. Hmm. But if you know what to look for, they still have legs. Like all other lizards, one of the defining characteristics of lizards is that they have overlapping scales. Uh, This is extremely obvious in snakes and very unlike things like crocodilians or turtles that have scoots. They basically have little blocks that sort of just fit together of scales. If you look at like a turtle shell, you know, the little... Their, their version of scales don't overlap at all. They just sort of meet at the seams. Hmm. Because snakes are so specialized into this long tube shape, their organs are all kind of funky. For example, all of their organs that are normally paired and side by side instead have to be one in front of the other. So that's the case of their, like, kid, their kidneys, their reproductive organs, uh, but not the case of their lungs because they only usually have one. What? Yep. They the other one's usually there, but it it doesn't do anything. Okay. Wait, hold on. Back up. So there's two lungs, but only one of them works. R- well, the other one is vestigial and very very small. Okay. Okay. Theoretical question. Yeah. Somehow they puncture their main lung. Can they use their vestigial no. lung? Okay. It's so like, it's really pointless. It's not even an extra. Yes. Yeah. It's it's like less than five percent the size. And I'm just look based on like some diagrams I've seen. And I have dissected a couple snakes, but um, really, that's funny. yeah. Just based on my memory and some diagrams I looked at for you know the the research for this episode. Yeah, it's like easily less than five percent the size of the main lung. Dang. Yeah. So it's not not even like an emergency backup lung. Yeah. So the, all of their organs get mushed around into this funky shape. And they actually have some really cool things going on with their genetics in order to, A, make that happen. But also with the limb loss, we don't have time to go into that today because this episode was already really long. It took up like four pages of notes and I didn't want to add up some genetic stuff that only I'm going to care about. So if you <laughs> are interested in some of the genetic stuff uh, of how snakes lost their limbs, it's really interesting. 
Cool. However, snakes are not the only group of lizards that have lost their legs. In fact, not even close. Without looking at the doc, any guesses as to how many times lizards have independently lost their legs? Um, Like throughout all time? That we're aware of. I think this might even just be based on currently living groups of lizards. Like 15, maybe? I don't think so. Here's the thing. I'm assuming the number is like either one or two or like, you know, several thousand. I'm assuming it's not like... Thousand? Right. Like, I'm assuming the answer is not like, oh, no, we have independently counted 15, but not 16 times. I'm assuming the answer is like two or, you know, like, you know, a lot more than that. I'm going to go with three. Uh, No. Fia was closer. It is give or take 25 times. Really? Wow. And we've been yep. able to count those individually each time? Yeah. When I say we, I'm, of course, including myself in this as part well, of the yes. team that was the, counting. The royal we. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's... Wow. So it's, we just have, you know, where it's like this one or two groups of skinks independently just lost their legs. This gecko over here lost its legs. Um, this is just something that lizards are very fond of doing. And snakes just like took that and ran with it. Because that's not to say the other ones don't do well, you know. They they are perfectly well adapted to their environments. They seem most of them seem to be doing pretty okay. Mm-hmm. Um it's not like snakes are like out competing them or anything, but uh snakes seem to have real done it very early relative to some of the other ones, as well as uh metaphorically because you know evolution doesn't really have a goal but really just like took the no legs thing and just really ran with it metaphorically because they can't run (laughs) well done (laughs) thank you aside from the leglessness thing which which like i said that by itself is not a defining characteristic of this is a snake this is not a snake snakes also have some other features mostly that they lack external ears if you look at the the head of a snake they don't have ear holes Oh, really? Which is weird. Yeah. Pretty much all the other legless lizards do. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking of like a bearded dragon, how they have like those little holes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I guess snakes don't. Nope. Snakes have an eyelid cap, which uh, most people might think of like a gecko when they lick their eyes. So they have a scale that grows over their eye to like encapsulate their eye. So it's like their eyes permanently closed, but the their eyelid is see-through. What? So that's why when they shed their skin, they have an eye on it. They don't have just a hole where their eye is. I'm confused. Go go ahead. What what do you got? So they have two eyelids or just one? Nope. And it's just one. But it's always closed. It's always closed. Okay. Why? But it's see-through. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit. Okay. When we talk about their evolution, because that is, like I said, they're not the only group of lizards that do that. Uh, lots of geckos do that, as well as I'm sure lots of other lizards. Um, why snakes specifically did it? We'll we'll get there when we talk about their evolution. But that that by itself is not an unusual thing for lizards to do. But the most 
defining thing about snakes is their skulls because their skulls are crazy. Lizards in general have very mobile skulls. Their bones are not particularly well fused to one another. Snakes really took that and ran with it. Uh, and the main thing is that all snakes are predators. Even things like spiders, there's like a species or two that somehow eat plants. That's not a thing in snakes. All snakes have to eat other animals. Because of this, they've become very ingenious about the different ways that they can open their mouth. <laughs> and all of their bones being not well fused together and allows them to move their face in various ways because they don't have arms to be able to manipulate their food. So, because of this, uh, they have a large amount of what's called cranial kinesis. They can just move the bones in their skull around in really strange ways. The most famous example is in their lower jaws. So, unlike you, where... So, your lower jaw is two bones, one on either side of your head that sort of fuse where your chin is. Yeah. Snakes don't have that. Snakes have a ligament that connects them instead of like a, an actual chin. And they can separate it out and open their mouth sort of wider to the side. They also have their jaw attached to their skull very far back. Which lets, you know, just gives them a wider angle that they can open it at. And then they also more or less have a second joint at that hinge that allows it to open even wider. Hmm. They can also move mm -hmm. each side of the jaw independently which lets them sort of hook in and then walk their prey back into their face because they don't oh, have arms to do that for them. That is a depiction I did not want to have in my brain. Yeah, if you've, <laughs> if you've never watched a snake eat something, like it might be a little disturbing, but definitely look it up. It's very interesting. <laughs> and they're, also their upper jaws aren't all that well fused to the rest of their skull. So they can How also be moved a little bit as well. Um, that's an excellent question. Uh, they are just not fused. Okay. I, which is just I, so foreign a concept to me as somebody exactly. who's, you know, as somebody whose who's, jaw you know, is fused. Jaw, upper jaw is fused. But okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, they, they can't move it nearly as much as they can the lower jaw, mm -hmm. but they can sort of wiggle it a little bit. They can't like use that as much to walk in their food like they can the lower jaw but they can sort of nudge it in w with their top jaw okay so those are the features that sort of make snakes snakes i could go on and list all the weird unique things about snakes all day but we don't have time for that hmm. snakes are really cool let's talk a little bit about the snake diversity because most people I would wager if you are afraid of snakes, you picture big snakes when you think of snakes. If you're not afraid of snakes, you probably think of your favorite snake, uh, which in my case is the hognose snake because they're really cool and have these little tiny upturned noses that they use to like shovel through dirt. They're very cute. Nice. <laughs> but there are pretty much three main groups that people will be vaguely familiar, of, familiar with. Uh, the pythons, the boas, and then a group that is very big and very broad that we'll talk a little bit more uh, about and break down, which is called the colubroids. And we'll, like I said, we'll talk about that in a minute. Pythons and boas are only superficially similar. They're not very closely related at all, but they're often lumped together because they tend to be bigger and 
they're the you know famous constricting snakes, even though most snakes constrict their prey. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're like I said, often just lumped together because the, they tend to be some of the bigger ones. These are your anacondas, uh, your boa constrictors, uh, things like reticulated pythons as well in the python group. Um, but the the main there are lots of anatomical differences as well, but um, pythons are exclusive to the old world and Australia, so you will not find native pythons anywhere in the Americas. Well, boas live everywhere, but are much more famous from here in the New World. Why is that? So uh, that just has to be where they evolved. Okay. Which is a little odd. Now I'm thinking about it, because boas in particular are a very old group. Uh, we'll talk about a particular member of uh, their group that got real big later. But yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it just as a matter of where they happen to go. Um, yeah. There there are some things that you will sometimes hear called boas in the old world um, that are sort of technically not boas. I'm sure that there are some here and there, but they, most of the roles that pythons fill in like Southeast Asia and all the, the rainforests and jungles around there are filled by boas in the new world. So there's lots of different kinds of tree pythons and tree boas um, that sort of do the same job, but in different places. Okay. That other group, the colubroids, uh, make up about 85% of snakes. So this is a massive group. Um, The main family is called colubridae. And this is pretty much all of your quote-unquote average snakes. These are your garter snakes, your water snakes, Rat snakes, milt snakes, king snakes, corn snakes, etc. All your fairly normal, typically non-venomous snakes. However, this larger group, the colubroids, also includes most of your venomous snakes, with things like your vipers and your elapids, which are your cobras and their relatives. Vipers include things like the uh, gaboon vipers, which, despite only being about four or five feet long, have the largest fangs of any snake because oh. they're vipers and have those wicked long, you know, like four inch teeth that That's they just nuts. Yeah. Um, the vipers also include things like your uh, rattlesnakes, pit vipers, etc. Elapids include cobras, but also things like your coral snakes, uh, most of the venomous sea snakes, uh, things like mambas as well. And the king cobra, which isn't technically a cobra, but is in this group. So that's the the types of snakes and their features. But where do snakes sort of fit on the reptile family tree? I already mentioned that snakes are lizards, which means that they are in a group called the lepidosaurs. So the, the large reptile family tree on one side, there's the lepidosaurs, which are where your lizards and snakes and things like the tuatara are. On the other side is your archosaurs. That's where your crocodilians, your uh, dinosaurs and birds, potentially turtles. Turtles are weird. We don't super know where they go, but we think it's on that side. So they are on a completely separate side of the reptile family tree as things like dinosaurs. And snakes, in particular, are not like a group that split off really early in this group of, of reptiles. 
you know, sometimes you'll get a group that splits off really early and do isn't really closely related to anything else. That's probably what happened with turtles. They split off really early and then got real weird. So we, that's why we don't really know where they go. But snakes, that's not the case. For example, there are lizards that are more closely related to snakes than they are to some other lizards. Whoa. Because genetics or... So because when it, genetics? <laughs> yes, technically. But most of the time when you say that, it means... Um, like their most recent common ancestor. Okay. So for example, essentially all lizards are more closely related to snakes than they are to geckos or skinks. Hmm. So for example, chameleons, monitor lizards, bearded dragons, iguanas, tegus, all of those are more closely related to snakes than they are to geckos or skinks. Geckos and skinks split off pretty early in the, the lizard timeline. And so all of those are have more in common and have a more recent common ancestor uh, with snakes than they do with other things that people would call lizards as well. Which is a little weird to wrap your head around because snakes look so different. Yeah. I mean, that's not too uncommon, though, things being related to each other despite not looking like each other, right? Right. I mean, humans look very strange compared to our relatives. Right. <laughs> and the, the reason that we know this isn't actually really from fossils. We're, we'll get up to the fossils in a little bit. Spoilers, there's not many. Um, <laughs> but... The reason we know this is because of genetics, and it's not often that I give genetics too much credit on this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but this is a case where uh, it actually is very helpful because they didn't try to just go by percent similarity, or similarity, which is sometimes where I think genetics really goes wrong, where it's like, oh, these things have X percent of their genetics in common. They must be more related than this other thing that has less of a percent in common, which you would think works, but because of the way evolution works, evolution is very complicated. <laughs> so just going by percent difference or similarity in DNA doesn't always tell you which groups are more related to each other when they've been separated for tens to hundreds of millions of years, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. In the early 2000s, so like fairly recently in, in terms of science, some researchers decided to take a sort of harder look into the genetics of venom in snakes. One of the things that snakes are pretty much the most famous for. Some You might argue some things like spiders or scorpions or things like that are more famous for their venom. But mo I would consider snakes to be some of the more, most famous venomous, you know, really dangerous animals out there uh, in the world. And what they ended up finding was that lots of quote-unquote non-venomous snakes actually did produce some form of venom. It just wasn't in concentrated amounts like it is in vipers or cobras. But, uh, you know, so it's not meaningful to humans, really, but it's meaningful to their prey, which is really all you need venom to do. Right. 
So this finding was very surprising to a lot of people. And this got people looking at the actual genetics of, you know, how venom happens, how it evolves, where it's located on the genome, things like that. Some of the more complicated things that, again, we're not super going to get into. But they had kind of thought that gen- uh, the genetics were very specialized for venom because venom are very specific proteins that cause all this damage when they get injected into you. And not only did they find the genes for venom in all these species of snakes that they don't consider venomous, but they found it in lots of species of lizards that are not known to be venomous. Hmm. There are only a handful of venomous lizards. Things like uh, a couple species of monitor lizards and then a handful of species like the the Gila monster or your beaded lizards here in uh, like southern North America. But all of those, you know, were just kind of thought to be one-off cases. But mm-hmm. finding these venom genes in things like iguanas, uh, agamids, which include things like your bearded dragons, an incredibly common pet lizard, or probably the second most common pet lizard and they have the same or similar genes for venom as things like cobras do. Which was fairly surprising to a lot of people. <laughs> so the, the researchers who discovered this decided to create a new group. You know, as, as you do when you discover that this group and this group are related, you need to come up with a new group that includes all of those groups. So they created a new group that contained all the lizards known to have those venom genes, including snakes, which they called Toxicophora, which I think (laughs) is a wonderful name. That's fantastic. So in this group, we have all of those lizards on one side and a group called Pythonomorpha, which is snakes, mosasaurs, and some of their cousins on the other side. So that's, that's the general snake family tree. Okay. Cool. But how did snakes get to be these little noodles, or sometimes gigantic noodles? <laughs> the the forbidden pasta. Ah, uh, gross. <laughs> have, okay, question: Have either of you ever eaten snake? No. No. Me neither. Just check. I know. Yeah. Well, reading through a lot of these things. Uh, I did see many a picture of snake meat, which I wasn't yeah. particularly uh, fond of. It didn't really look appetizing. Although, a uh, very fun anecdote that I'm not going to take too much time on. But uh, I remember sometime, maybe like two years ago, seeing uh, some news go about uh, about an early human. I don't remember if it was like Homo sapiens or whether it was a Neanderthal or some other species of human or human cousin. Um, but I think it was found in like Northern Africa somewhere, but they found, uh, in a human coprolite, which is fossilized poop, mm. uh, the bones, uh, including a fang of some kind of viper. What? A yeah. viper. Yeah. Which That's are crazy. all venomous. Yeah. So they ate. Most, including most likely the skull and all the pointy teeth of a viper. And then because it was a coprolite, they passed it. Um, And so moving on. uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, it was sort of hypothesized that it might have been for some kind of uh, religious or spiritual sort of thing. Okay. I'm not qualified to speak about that kind of thing, but somebody yeah. at one point ate a whole snake, uh, and I'm positive that that probably wasn't the first time or the last time. So, <laughs> yeah. Talk about their evolution now. How do we get from a no- relatively normal-looking lizard, a proper, uh, you know, tetrapod with the four legs that they should have, to these these noodles? And a big part of that we'll probably never know, because snakes don't leave great fossils. And despite some of them being quite large, their bones are relatively small and fragile because especially their, their skulls, which would probably be the most helpful thing for understanding their evolution because their skulls are so unfused and flexible. That also means that they're very fragile and fragile bones do not turn into good fossils. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, even in your body, the probably at least like top three biggest bones in a human body are your thigh bone, your upper arm bone, and your shin bone. And snakes don't have any of that. All they have to work with are skull bones and then vertebrae and ribs. That's all they got. Right. So because of that, you know, if one thing, if there's one thing that snakes do have a lot of, it is vertebrae. So the vast majority of snake fossils are backbones because they have several hundred of them. Mm-hmm. And so even though that might not be the most ideal thing for telling one species apart from another, uh, research have gotten, researchers have gotten really, really good about looking at all the very minute details of like even like a single snake backbone and figuring out what it does, whether it was aquatic, whether it climbed, how big it was, um, potentially what it ate, even just yeah. from a single backbone or two. Because snakes are so weird, we've spent a ton of time researching them. And so from a single backbone or two, you can tell a lot about a snake. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's it was actually very impressive how much we kind of know about snakes given how few fossils we have and how relatively poor the fossils that we have are. And so how do you like verify that what they know is right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. It would mostly be people doing, you know, repeat studies and coming up mm-hmm. with the same results or by comparing them to modern snakes that like, well we can observe this snake and we know that it spends most of its time in trees or in the water. And we know that it mostly eats this kind of prey and it's has these features on its, uh, on its backbones for doing that. And then comparing it to fossils. Gotcha. <laughs> but there are sometimes, um, and I don't know a, per- a specific example off the top of my head, but if we found a snake mm-hmm. that was like, we don't know what this was doing. We can't even really guess if there's not like a modern one to sort of compare it to. Mm-hmm. Okay, but no, that was, that was a really good question. Cool. So the first squamates, so that is the lizard group, appear in the early Jurassic period, so sometime around just after two hundred million years ago or so, right after a big mass extinction at the end of the Triassic period. 
And at this time, they basically just look like lizards. Your your normal garden variety lizard. <laughs> garden lizard. <laughs> much, much, much later, in the Cretaceous period, we start to see some of the changes that we sort of associate with the, the snake to lizard. Or I, I keep saying that backwards. Lizard to snake transition. <laughs> and firstly, there's a little bit of controversy about why snakes would lose their limbs. Even though, like I said, lizards have done that many times. But why snakes specifically did it is kind of up for debate. And there are two sort of leading hypotheses. One is that they did it as an adaptation for burrowing. And the other is that they did it as an adaptation for swimming. Unfortunately, adaptations that make you good for burrowing also usually make you pretty good at swimming. Mm Mm-hmm. So we don't know. Pretty much. Uh, (laughs) um, And for a good example of that, look at moles. Uh, Moles are really good, obviously, at digging, but they're also really good swimmers. Uh, It turns out if you just turn your hands into shovels. (laughs) uh, Shovels are really good at digging, but they also make pretty good oars as well. (laughs) Um, So... Whereas with things like moles, we can tell, okay, if if you were doing this specifically for swimming, you probably wouldn't take this route. This seems like the, you know, walking around the block three times when you could have just walked 10 feet that direction mm-hmm. to get to the same place. You know, take, they took the long route if you were turning your hands into oars to become aquatic. Um, but we don't have that kind of evidence for snakes because they don't have limbs to sort of give us clues like a proper animal does. And a lot of the features that I sort of talked about when, when talking about the different features of snakes could be good for either streamlined bodies would be good for pushing your way through dirt or water. Those eye caps would be really good at keeping dirt out of your eyes, or it could be really good for preventing the loss of ions. Uh, If you were in salt water preventing you from losing water through your eyes if you lived in the ocean. If you sealed off your eye, that wouldn't happen. Uh, Similar thing with no ears. If you don't have ear holes, you can't get dirt in your ears if you're digging underground. And if you're in the water, you can just hear by being in the water. Uh, You know, water transmits sound waves much more efficiently than air tends to. So all of these things could be good for either. So they don't really lend one way or the other so there's there's especially looking at some of the actually fairly decent fossils that we have from the late cretaceous for snakes it kind of leans more toward uh the marine or at least aquatic because a lot of their relatives from this time were aquatic but the jury's still out okay but going through their timeline a little bit. And like I said, this can, this part's going to be fairly sparse because we don't have a ton of great fossils, especially for like the actual transition. However, one that you will see a lot is a genus called Najash, which is an early snake that still had hind limbs. It still had very functional back legs uh, that were fully connected to a pelvis and that pelvis was fully connected to the spine. And there were also lots that had a pelvis that was not connected to the spine, which, um, you know, is sort of on the way to losing them. But this one was doing completely fine. 
you know, and it was not alone either. There were lots of snakes with hind limbs around this time as well. And they were doing their thing. Just like uh, when we talked about tetrapods coming up onto land, there were lots of fish that looked very salamander-like that were super content with staying in the water. It's not like losing their their legs was the snake's end goal. It was just something that happened. Right. And so around this time, like I said, this was late Cretaceous, so give or take 110 to 90-ish million years ago. And another one that might come up from around this time is called Tetrapodophis, which literally means four-limbed snake. Because it hmm. very much looks like a snake that has all four legs. However, this is a very controversial fossil. Uh, and not just for the scientists disagreeing about it thing. Okay, who stole it from who? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly <laughs> it. Um, Here we go. It was very likely collected and ex exported illegally from Brazil to a private collector in Germany who had it on loan to a German museum. And so when it got published in 2015, uh, the Brazilian government was like, hmm... We don't remember authorizing this thing to be sold to this guy. <laughs> and also, like I said, it was in a private collection and was only on loan to the museum, which is generally a no-no for most researchers. Even at the time, I think that was, that was a general, hey, don't do that. Because if it's in a private collection, that person gets to decide which scientists they like and which ones can do research on it, which is not the point of science. Science needs to be repeatable in order for it to be reliable. And if the owner gets to decide who does any kind of research on it, then that's no longer repeatable. So that is generally why fossils in private collections, it's kind of frowned upon to do science on them. So after some of these controversies, um, the person actually did end up withdrawing it from science and it, I don't believe it's available for study currently. But when it was published in 2015, it was sort of touted as the, the missing link for lizards to snakes. However, somebody else did get a chance to study it. And when they published on it in 2021, they determined that it was not actually a snake, but a, Close, but not terribly close relative. So not on the way to snakes, but sort of a cousin of snakes. Uh, so less fancy than this person might have wanted. But I, I believe it was after this study that the person was like, I don't want you people looking at my thing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so all that to say... We don't really know how snake, how or why lizards lost their legs to become snakes. But there are some cool highlights after that happens. By the time the Cretaceous ends, at 66 million years ago, snakes were more or less similar to today's boas and pythons. Generally more heavy-bodied, not, necessar not necessarily as big, but... Um, 
sort of bigger, stockier. And after the end Cretaceous mass extinction, there were lots of niches open, particularly for some large predators. Mm-hmm. So in the Paleocene, so in the 10 million years or so, right after the extinction in South America, we get a genus called Titanoboa. 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 Which is an excellent name. If you've ever seen the movie Anaconda, they should have called the movie Titanoboa because that was effectively what the movie was about. (laughs) Okay. This would have been an animal that looked very much like an anaconda, all the same body proportion, so a big, chunky snake. Uh, except it could get up to about 45 feet long. Which, for reference, like I said, the largest snakes today only get, like, maximum 25. That's crazy. This is a gigantic snake. And it was mostly eating fish. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Not even doing what anacondas do today and eating things like deer and, and, you know, the crocodilians that live down there. Nope, mostly fish. Wow. A little bit later, we see uh, a somewhat smaller snake in northern Africa called Gigantophis, which was a giant sea snake around 30 to 35 feet long. So lots and lots of big snakes. We, we live in a world of relatively small snakes today. That's probably for the best. Yeah, I mean, well, to be fair, we probably would have killed all the big ones by now. <laughs> nice. Humans are pretty good at that. But That is kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. The big thing in snakes was in the last 20 million years or so, as global climates tended to cool and dry, uh, grasslands really exploded across the entire world, but especially here in North America. And small rodents really like grasslands. It gives them lots of spaces to hide. Um, It gives them tall grass to hide in. It gives them lots of food because things like wheat and um, barley and all most of the, you know, regular human crops that aren't, uh, you know, fruit are really good eating for small rodents. And small rodents are really good eating for snakes. So... Uh, Around this time, as these grasslands spread and diversified, so did snakes. That's where we get uh, vipers and elapids, the two main groups of venomous snakes, spreading more and more across the world, including to North America. That was the first time that they got here. Uh, A little bit after that, we get the first rattlesnakes, which are exclusively a North and South America thing. And especially the sort of quote-unquote average snake group, the colubrids, uh, they absolutely explode in diversity around this time to give us all the different groups that we have today. Wow. Yeah. So the, the world of snakes that we live in has only really been there for give or take 15 million years ago. Which is shorter than I would have thought. I would have thought that snakes went back just like forever. Right. Right. And they do, but they weren't as big a part of their ecosystems as they are today. Right. Right. Yeah, so that's that's the story of snakes, and I wish that their fossil story was a little more complete. Um, but it really it really does seem like most of the most interesting snakes live today, which is 
fairly unusual for a paleontologist to say. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because we have, we have snakes with all sorts of different features, like the gliding snake. Um, obviously, that snake had to evolve from something, but we don't have any evidence of any snakes in the fossil record having the ability to glide like that. Things like spitting cobras. You know, they are extremely specialized because not only do they have the little hole at the bottom of their fangs to like inject their prey like a needle, they also have another forward facing hole in their fangs to squirt the venom out of that way too, so they can spit at you. Super cool. No record of that in the fossil record. Wow. So lots of really, really cool snakes around today. Um, so next time you see a snake, maybe just leave it alone. Whether you see it in, in your yard or, uh, you know, just sort of out and about, just, just leave it alone. Let it do its thing. It will always lose a fight with you. So it will, does not want to fight you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's actually a fun anecdote that I learned when I was living in South Dakota is that the rattlesnakes in sort of the great plains are evolving away the ability to rattle because we kill the ones that rattle. So the ones that stay quiet live. Oh, wow. So mm-hmm. they the reason that they have the rattle is to warn you, Hey, I'm spicy. Don't come near mm-hmm. me. And we kill the ones that tell us they're spicy. So now we only have the hidden spicy ones, uh, which, which you don't want. Terrifying. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you don't have to love snakes, but don't be afraid of snakes. Just let them do their thing from a respectable distance and everyone will be more happy. That's, that's my moral of the story. Including the snakes. Especially including the snakes. The snakes will Mm -hmm. be ecstatic because there are very few snakes that can win a fight with a human. (laughs) At least without dying themselves. Like, uh, there are lots of snakes that can win a long-term fight with a human or at least come to a draw because it'll kill you too after you kill it. Mm-hmm. But like a human can very readily, even probably with just like your bare hands, kill a king cobra fairly easily. But <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, at, at best, it will be a draw. Um, so the snake doesn't want to bite you. And also, you are not what its venom is for. It's for its food. So it doesn't want to spend it on you. It wants to spend it on something it's going to get resources out of, uh, which is not yeah. you. So right. for like the fourth time that I'm saying it here, just leave them alone. They don't like you either. Please leave snakes alone and we will be leaving you alone until next week on I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things Very that used good, to Mike. be alive. That was excellent. Yes. I know that was one hell of a job on my part. So... <laughs> Uh, next week, we have a um, uh, Mike Takes the Wheel episode. I don't know what we're going to do, but I'm looking forward to it. And I hope you are too. But until then, take care, everybody. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fenella Campanino. It was sound edited and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you. 